Hi, this is Dan O'Shannon, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 97, for May 4th, 2020. Well, today I have the privilege of bringing you an interview with Dan O'Shannon, executive producer of Cheers, Frasier, and Modern Family, with writing credits on tons of other shows, including The Orville, Newhart, Star Trek Enterprise, Jericho, Better Off Ted, Back to You, and The Odd Couple, creator of the show Maggie, and also author of the book What Are You Laughing At? His awards include six Emmys, two Golden Globes, one Oscar nomination, six WGA awards, one Annie Award for Best Animated Short. Um, he is a veteran writer, and you're going to love this interview. This episode is sponsored by Pilar Alessandra of OnThePage.tv. Be sure to check out all the resources and classes on her site, and she also offers one-on-one -on -one coaching via Zoom. TV Writer Podcast viewers can get 10% off on any of her services. Just reach out to Pilar directly and tell her I sent you. Speaking about sponsoring, there's a new way that you can support the podcast. There are a lot of operational costs like hosting, web server. You can visit tvwriterpodcast.com slash support to find out how you can become a patron of the podcast for as little as 25 cents per episode. Check it out, tvwriterpodcast.com slash support. Be sure to check out all of the resources at tvwriterpodcast.com. Um, there's links to hundreds of free scripts. There's a, a number of other resources on the site. There's back episodes, a whole bunch of them. And uh, you can find this podcast in a lot of different places. The podcast uh, site can give you links for that, but you can get it on Podbean, Spotify, YouTube. Um, you can uh, also get it in iTunes and in uh, the Script Magazine uh, website as well. Um, there's a little bit, bit of delay between when it's released on Podbean and when it comes on Script Magazine, but you can find all the back episodes in any of these places. But uh, please do follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, to find out about all the developments related to the podcast. Also, be sure to send your questions in. Um, I will generally tweet uh, who I'm going to be uh, interviewing, and you can send your questions, and I'll even read them on the podcast and, and ask these writers for you. But for now, you're going to love this interview with Dan O'Shannon. Let's roll. Well, I am here with Dan O'Shannon, executive producer of Cheers, Fraser, Modern Family, um, and also writer for New Heart, love that show, and author <laughs> of the book, What Are You Laughing At? How you doing, Dan? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. Um, I, I have to geek out a little bit because the stuff you've written on is some of, I mean, it's everybody's favorite shows, but I just have a special my heart, uh, place in my heart for, for New Heart especially. Um, oh. that, when I was uh, growing up, that was a, a, a special show for our family to watch together and uh, just a lot of great memories. Oh, well, that's nice to hear. I, I was lucky to get on that show and lucky to work with ridiculously funny and talented people. And I, I grew up listening to Bob Newhart's albums from when he did stand-up. Mm. And they were my mom's. But, I mean, I listened to them over and over, and then eventually I got to work for him. I, I, I was so intimidated. I don't think I spoke to him until, like, the last day I was there. Wow. You know, I, it was, I am one of the writers. <laughs> you know, it was that kind of thing. Um, yeah. he was great. They, were, they were all great. Very, very cool. Um and uh, and I do want to talk about and I, I gotta share. I mean, I grew up listening to uh, the seventy eights of Bill Cosby. We had a dozen of those. Oh gosh! And I I could I can relate to that. Um, 
because it was it was long before DVRs and things and things like that. And but it was so cool to just throw on that record and and listen together. Yes, um, yeah, sure. But that actually led to you doing stand up. Um or well, I can't I can't say it led to that, but what what were the things that that did inspire you to do stand up? Yeah. Well, uh let's see. I'd always since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be funny and uh, I wasn't particularly, but I wanted to be. And, uh, you know, so I was uh, doing everything I could to try to be funny. And I was probably a pretty obnoxious kid. And uh, I'm very grateful that no one killed me. But uh, I uh, uh, somewhere around 17 or 18, I started to become what I would call reliably funny. And um, but all my life I was I was listening to comedy albums and reading comics and uh uh, you know, watching the sitcoms and old comedy movies and anything I could get my hands on. And then eventually co comedic essays and then essays about comedy and uh, on and on. It just filled up my head. And eventually, um, I, um, like I say, started to be funny. And when I graduated from high school, which I just barely did, and then I barely got into a college, I went to the English department. And I said, like, I'd like to learn how to write sitcoms because wouldn't that be great? And this was back in 1980. So there was no Internet. There were no home computers. You couldn't just Google, how do you become a TV writer? It was so mysterious. And back then, there were only three networks mm -hmm. uh, and, and no, no real cable, really, to speak of. And um, But uh, you know, people in Ohio, where I grew up and where I am right now, uh, they thought it was a mystery. And, you know, TV and movies, that just came out of Hollywood or maybe New York, but no one knew how it was made. So I'd say, I want to write for TV shows. No one knew what I was talking about. You know, there's a story I tell where I was, there's a girl I was dating and I, I said, uh, I want to go to Los Angeles and maybe write for Johnny Carson, who's hosting the Tonight Show. And she said, what do you mean write for him? And I said, you know, like write his jokes. And she thought about it and she says, oh, oh, you mean like when he makes jokes, you would take them down like a stenographer? I said, no, I write them before he says them. Well, how do you know what he's going to say? You know, it's just like this <laughs> horrible. Um, but uh, uh, so no one really knew. And uh, so I dropped out of college pretty quickly because they weren't able to help me. And I started doing stand up and I started in Cleveland on an, in an amateur night. And that began my sort of education. And I, I you know, uh, would have I'd do OK. And then I'd have some insight that would change my act or change the way I was doing something. And I'd move up a notch and I'd do that for one. I'd have some insight that would move me up a notch. And, you know, and eventually, uh, you know, I end up doing uh, writing, you know. Very cool. And, and you moved to L.A. and you were still doing stand up in L.A. or, or how, how did the. Uh, no, I, I did stand up out in this part of the country for uh, two or three years. And I was always telling everyone that I could talk to. I want to go to Los Angeles and write TV. And again, no one knew how no one knew how. But I knew a, a, a local comedian who said that he was going to go to uh, Los Angeles. And I yeah, And if I ever needed a place to stay, I could stay on his couch. Very nice of him. Um, he had no idea I was going to take him up on it, but I did. Mm -hmm. My parents were dead set against it. They thought I was crazy for dropping out of college. They couldn't believe I was doing stand up. They, and the idea of going to Los Angeles, just like, so, so crazy to them. They, you know, it's on, on, you're never going to make it. You're not talented. Who do you think you are? And so I left a note on the kitchen table, uh, and I had a one way ticket. Um, I took a flight to Los Angeles and I had a hundred bucks in my pocket. And, uh, and now I have easily twice that. Uh, <laughs> but I, uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, I ran away from home essentially and uh, went to Los Angeles. Wow. Well, and, and actually, I think it's really cool because a lot of a lot of people think that to write for comedy you have to be just naturally funny. And and from I haven't read your book, but what I know about yeah. your book is that is that you you have uh, thoroughly studied 
what it means to be funny, and you've learned how to be funny. And I, and I think that's that's something cool for for somebody to know that you that, that is, this is something that you can learn. Well, I think I think it's you know Steve Allen wrote a book once about being funny, and he said that he said my book book won't make you funny if you aren't funny, but it will whatever level of funny you are, this will make you a little funnier. Hmm. And uh, I studied it because I was a very analytical kid, and I don't know that I had any innate ability. But I also started literally when I was like eight years old. Eight years, there was like literally a day when it occurred to me to be funny. Oh, what if I what if I make people laugh? What would it be like to make people laugh? And that was a big thing for me. And and then of course I tried the next day. I was going to be funny, funny, funny. No one thought I was funny. I was just making a fool of myself at the time. I was a loud kid trying to be witty, and um, and uh, and so I started to. Uh, essentially, yeah, study it and study and study and study it. Not formally, but I was just absorbing and going, oh, okay, he said it this way. And then if you change that, then it's da 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 da. You know, I'd start to notice similar jokes and shows. Oh, that's the same as the other joke, but instead of refrigerator, they said, you know, whatever. Um, and I, and, but it really wasn't until, like I say, I was probably about 17 or 18 when I started to become somewhat funny, where my, my average of being funny every time I opened my mouth got a little bit higher, mm-hmm. you know, than it had been. Now, if I was an adult starting off going, well, I think I'm going to be funny. I don't know if I ever would have learned it. I think I had to basically give my childhood over to that study. That was my <laughs> 10, you know, plus the yeah. standard that I did, you know. Um, but uh, so you you can learn to be able to, you can better, you can notice patterns, you can learn construction easily so that if someone says something, you hear the setup, you, oh, there's a different way to translate that that's less expected. So I will respond to the less expected version of of what I just heard. And then they will go back and see what I did. And then I have a joke, you know, mm. very easy. to do. Yeah. Um, and, and eventually you just, especially you write this, I've been writing 35 years and that was after the stand up and after all the study where it's a very often, I'm just in regular conversation. I'll hear things and my mind will, will, will note, Oh, that's, that's a setup. That's a, I can do this. I can do that. It doesn't mean I do because I want to actually have a real living conversation with someone and respect them. You know, but my brain hears it when the option goes by. You know, mm. so yeah. Well, in it, and I, I have talked to a lot of comedy writers, and, and quite a few of them have gone through stand-up. Do you think that's a, an important sort of workshop for the the comedic muscles? I think it's a good one, and certainly in my generation, it's all you had because there was nobody in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1980 looking for a comedy writer, um, and uh, you know, it was a good sort of half step to get to writing it is just getting a feel for what's funny, getting, getting that rush of hearing an audience laugh until it becomes an addiction. And then that will drive you to work on your act and work on your act. And, um, you know, it's very good. And then the writing part is almost as like the separate part. This the, when you get into story structure and the craft narrative, uh, character motivations, you know, on and on, uh, that is an, a whole different education it has nothing to do with being funny. You know, there are like I'm not gonna, I'm going to totally generalize and say there's sort of two ends of the spectrum for TV comedy writers, mm-hmm. the ones that come in and they're just like really funny, but they did not great at structure, not great at character motivation, but they will come out with jokes you've never dreamt of. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones that are really good at narrative and no, this scene doesn't have any build to it. We've got to we got to close out this option in order. Da, 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 da. They're great at story, but they're not pitching the best jokes in the world. And then there are a lot of writers that all along that spectrum, a lot right in the middle and can do both, you know, um, the ones that are good at making jokes, they will always work in comedy or sitcom writing 
but they can't really transition over to drama. Whereas the ones that are good at story can transition over to drama if they have to. I've done drama a couple of years and sci-fi. Um, but um, it's, I, I, say, I think it's a good starting ground. I mean, look, anything that gives you experience crafting a joke and making a joke better and actually having the laboratory of an audience to mm-hmm. tell you if you're right or wrong, it's valuable. And, and would you say that multicam comedy also gives you a bit of that workshopping as well because, you, because they are typically done in front of a live studio audience? Yes, I was very lucky uh, to work for shows like New Heart and Cheers and Frasier that had the studio audience. And so every week was another laboratory for me. You know, I sometimes I would get, you know, I would just sometimes I would just stand under the bleachers and I would hear the show being acted in front of me and just listen for the audience and just feel what was going on with them. So I really want to know what's happening in the mind of the audience. You know, sometimes you get the right laugh for the wrong reason. You know, I learned Mm -hmm. that. You know, that's that was an interesting uh, lesson. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I liked it because I got to experiment and see, like, how long can you drag a joke out before it stops being funny and then starts getting funny again? And, and now I understand why that happens, actually. Mm. You know, um, but uh, no, I couldn't be happier to have that opportunity to just keep experimenting with with, you know, you have a certain joke. But then if the character who makes the joke has been put down by the person he makes the joke against, he becomes a hero. And so you attach the joke to an emotion and it's like rocket fuel, it's 10 times mm. funny. You know, uh, stuff like that. You know, uh, it was it was great. So how how wind back a little bit to um, when you first got that first staff gig from being a stand up? Um, how did that happen? Who uh, was it? Somebody you knew from stand up, or, or was an opportunity? How how did that opportunity come up? Well, uh, when I got to Los Angeles, I worked at a movie theater, the Sherman Oaks Galleria, and uh, that was my full time. That made me money, and then I started doing. I would do like. Local, I would do amateur nights because people in Los Angeles didn't know that I had been doing stand up for two or three years, but there was always a cash prize for the amateur nights. So I would do open mics and I'd like collect 50 bucks here or 75 bucks there and it got me some food. But I met a comedian named uh, Karen Haber and she was really nice to me and I, we wrote some jokes together. And then she introduced me to a writer named Mark Sotkin who was writing for uh, a show called Charles in Charge. And I was thrilled. I mean, here's a guy with his name on TV. And that was such a big <laughs> thing back then, so big. Yeah. And uh, he told me what a spec script was, that you pick a show and you write an episode of it and then you use that as your sample. And so I took a bus into Hollywood. I was living in Van Nuys. Took a bus into Hollywood and there was a show, a uh, store at Larry, L- Larry Edmonds Bookshop, Booksellers. Mm-hmm. And they had a bunch of souvenir scripts. And one of them that I bought for $5 was an episode of Cheers. And I studied this thing. I'd never seen a script formatted before. Studied it front to back. I borrowed a manual typewriter, and on this typewriter, the space key did not always work. So after every word, I manually advanced the characters, every word, and I, my first script, I didn't understand about outlining at the time. I just wrote and then finished it, what I thought the right number of pages would be, and Mark Sotkin looked at it, and he told me what I did right and told me what I did wrong. I went back, and I rewrote it, and then I wrote a Cosby show. Uh, this was 1984, and then uh, both of those he showed to his boss, who was just about to start running uh, a show called It's a Living, uh, in syndic- first run syndication in 1985. And that was my first TV job. Very cool. And uh, and so once you're on staff, obviously, you got to learn the structure and you got to learn everything like that. Um, tell me a bit about uh, how that led to your first couple of bigger gigs. Uh, well, I sort of, you know, I It's a Living was a really good experience. I sort of crashed and burned in that for a couple of reasons. I, I, I didn't come back for a second season after that, uh, on their request. And, um, you know, I think that uh, 
a lot of writers, I'm going to skip ahead to something I think you want to talk about later, but maybe it's a good time to talk about now is a lot of writers, when they talk about, you know, future writers to talk to future writers, it's all about how to get that gig, how to get that job. And no one ever teaches you you're in the writer's room. Now what, you know, and it's a scary place and you have just put all your energy to getting there. And then you are in this foreign land around a big table with people who mostly know each other. And they're talking in a foreign language, a million miles a minute. You want to impress them, but you want, don't want to make a fool of yourself. Everyone's scared to death. And everyone, every, those, those first few months you go home every night living or dying by how many pitches anyone liked in the room and you're counting them, you know, mm. uh, it's a terrifying place to be. And, um, and, you know, you make mistakes. There are a lot of mistakes people make. Uh, sometimes they want to prove themselves so badly they come on too strong and then you won't shut up. And then someone has to have a little talk with you and say, all right, calm down. We know you're new. So just take your time and get your footing. You're going to be fine. Uh, some people over pitch. And that that might mean like doing a whole long build up to your pitch. You're looking for a joke and someone says, well, you know, uh, OK, well, this OK, this joke reminds me of something that happened when I was 10. And my brother and I did this thing and we were building a thing and blah, 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 10 minutes. And then, and then he said, ah, so what if that's the joke? Well, thank you. But we didn't need that 10 minute story. Hmm. You know, so that's like a common mistake, too. Or the mistake of you've been hit. You've pitched a few jokes that haven't worked and you start putting yourself down and losing your confidence entirely. And you start pitching with what, well, here's one you're all going to hate. Oh. And then you're pitching that. And it's like, don't, don't put that on us, you know, um, uh, stuff like that. Arguing to keep your things in the script. If the executive producer says, we don't need this. And yes, you worked on the script and you have a reason for everything to be there, but you don't just start arguing about it. No, no, we need it. You know, maybe raise one objection, but then shut up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I fought for stuff. Um, you know, stuff like that. Uh, another thing just politically is like on your first day, be careful of those on the staff who would take you under their wing. You know, you're new and you're a staff writer and suddenly like a supervising producer comes over. It's like about two thirds of the way up the ladder and says, here, let me show you your office, show you around. You know, it's going to be great. Hey, watch out for this guy because he usually does this. And she's the kind of person who da 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 da. And they've taken you under their wing. And what you don't know is how the rest of the staff likes that person. Oh. You know? And then you find out too late. You've now been associated with that person who's been down talking everybody around you. And you find out no one likes that person. And now you're associated with that person. Wow. It's a, you have to understand, but that's true in every line of work, but mm. you know, it certainly happens in a cutthroat, you know, uh, um, self-esteem bashing, uh, field such as this. Well, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, there, there is a lot of this mentality out there that everything is focused on breaking in. Yeah, and yeah. So you get that first staff gig, and you think it's going to be smooth sailing, and almost without fail, almost every person that I talk to, it's not the first show that that changes everything. It's maybe the second, maybe the third, the the and the 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 time between the first show and that second or third show that hits is really tough. Um, yes. Yeah. Tell me, tell me a bit about that sort of time for you. Right. Well, I was let go at the end of uh, the first year of It's a Living. I probably I don't blame them. I, I just I don't know that I always got the kind of guidance that would have helped me. But then again, it's so long ago, I can't really remember. But um, they felt it really, you know, my being there just really didn't work. And uh, so they let me go. And I was mortified, of course, and terrified I would never work again. And I, I had an agent uh, that I got during the time on my show. My I got this agent at the time he was I don't know who he was with, but uh, but 
during my downtime when I wasn't working, I would call them up and say, what scripts should I be writing? Who can I be talking to? Is there anything coming up that I could sort of like, you know, meet on or whatever? And he'd say, I'd call you back because I was his lowest level writer and he had mm-hmm. some big clients to deal with. So I would stress out and I'd write things, and I'd send things to him and then I'd call him up two weeks later and I'd say, well, you know, is there anyone I could meeting? Is there any show I should, what should I be? He'd say, I'll call you back. And he did this like for like a year. And finally, I got a different agent. I was lucky enough to land a different agent, a really good guy who I was with for many years. Years later, when I was running Cheers, my first agent called me and he uh, said, hey, look, I know we got off on the wrong foot back then. It was a different time, but I think I could do some great things for you now. What do you say we, we talk about it? I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a call. You know, I'll call you back. <laughs> Never talk to me again. Um, yeah. But I was, I was scared. I was really afraid that I was, a, this was, I had one shot and I blew it. And I was lucky to get that. I was never going to get in the door again. And that does happen to people, you know, and it happens to actors, too. You see an actor get on a sitcom and they go and buy their big house and their big car. And then it's gone after a season and you never hear from them again. You know, it's a terrifying business. Those first few years, especially. Hmm. But I I worked hard and I was very lucky. So lucky. Yeah. So so tell me about that. Uh, Your next gig was. Well, I I freelanced a few episodes of things. And this is it was a time when freelancing was a thing. Hmm. You would go into a show and you would pitch episodes. And I had little tricks that I would do. I would, I would try to find out who in the cast the writers hated writing for most. And then I would pitch episodes featuring that character because they'd go like, phew, someone else has a story. We don't have to break, break our heads trying to think of a story for that character. And also we'll make the kid write it. You know, we don't have to do it. Hmm. So stuff like that I would do. Um, but so I freelanced a few things. I'm trying to think if there was anything really notable. Well, I did freelance an episode of Newhart. And then um, the writer's strike came along of 1988, and I came back to Ohio and uh, ran into a friend of mine, Tom Anderson, and he's a really talented guy, and we've been friends for years, and I said, let's write something together. Let's write as a team. So he and I wrote a spec script together. We wrote a spec Cheers, I think. Yes, we did, because it was Cliff on Jeopardy. Uh, We wrote a a spec Cheers, and that got us a job as a team on Newhart, and we worked for a year on Newhart, and then we went to Cheers, and the spec script that we wrote, the A story became an episode of Cheers, and then they made the B story into a Cheers. Oh. So we were very fortunate, you know. Um, it, Tom and I teamed up at exactly the right time for both of us, and we were a team for about three or four years. And toward the end of our time on Cheers, we started writing individually and sort of forging our own careers. Oh, within uh, the same show? Within the same show, which was a handy way to do it because we had established ourselves and everyone knew us and they knew both of us had value to the show. So they they then hired us each as an individual for the final season, I think. Yeah, final season. And each of us wrote our own individual episodes, which then became our calling cards when we went off, you know, from Cheers. So it worked. We did it probably the best way you could do it. So we that's, were very, that's interesting because I know a lot of shows you can't do it until you leave. Right, right. Well, we had been at Cheers for three years before we did it. And so they knew. And if like one of us had just been riding on the other's coattails, it would have been really ugly because it's like it puts them in a position of, well, we like you, but we don't like that one. Or we like that one. We don't like you. Um, but we were very lucky in that both of us contributed a lot to the show. And so they were happy to just say, OK, we're, from now on, each of you is an entity. And that uh, that helped us you know, establish ourselves individually, leaving Cheers. And you said you were by the end of it, you were running the room on Cheers? Yeah, I say, well, Tom and I uh, technically, as a, we were, although we were not officially a team, we were the executive producers. So the two of us were the showrunners. And, um, and yeah, it, I, you know, I look back, I, I was 30 or 31 or something like that. No, yeah. And, it's, and I think, you know, we were kids. I can't believe they gave that show to us. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
was the keys to a Ferrari, you know, we're little kids. Um, and it is one of those things where I kind of look back and I think I wish I could run Cheers knowing what I know now, hmm. you know, like how to run a show. And I'm much better at story, I hope. Um, I, I wish I had more tools in the arsenal back then. Um, that's one of the reasons I don't watch old episodes of things I've written. That's so if I watch, I have regrets that I didn't do things differently or better. And I don't want to spoil the memory of that. In my, right now I remember the cheers was great and Frazier was great. And that was terrific. And I had some good times. If I go back and watch the episodes, I'll be faced with things that I see now and go, Oh, why did I do that? <laughs> so I, it's much safer for me not to watch anything I've ever worked on. Yeah. Yeah. And right around that time you created a show, Maggie, tell, tell me a bit about, especially back then, um, I don't know if it's any different now, but but what was it like back then to create that show? Well, Maggie was a show about, I wanted to do a show, I thought I'd be onto something if I could come up with a show that was both universally uh, relatable, but also unique. And what I mean is something everyone's going through, but that hasn't been the engine of a TV show here mm -hmm. in the United States anyway. And so it was about a woman who has been married for 20 years in the pilot, it's her 20th anniversary. And she has a, you know, a, uh, decent marriage it's okay sure and she starts working for a veterinarian who just kind of um charms her and he doesn't mean to but he's just a very charming person he also laughs at her jokes and he listens to her in a way that her husband doesn't she finds herself unwittingly falling in love with someone she's not married to and that drives her crazy because of her guilt and that was the the show and um i wrote the script and i got it around and abc came to me and said we want to do this and lifetime came to me and said we want to do this and I went with Lifetime because they said, we can do anything. We're not like the networks. So you can do like weird episodes from this point of view or that point of view or whatever. And so I went with Lifetime because I was told I had all this control. And then it turned out uh, a lot of the notes were like, well, this isn't like something you'd see on network TV. So they were in a position of wanting to prove themselves as unique creatively, but also in a position of we want to prove we're just like a real network by doing things just like a real network. So they were in a, a strange kind of bind trying finding their identity. And this was like back in 97. So it's quite a long time ago. Um, and, uh, it was a very frustrating time. They, they, because during the course of the first season, this poor woman is like buffeted back and forth because her husband's not a bad guy. And this guy's kind of magical and she knows that she's overthinking it and this and that. And, and you create this almost like ping pongy thing of will she, won't she do something? And half the audience is saying she should leave her husband and half the audience is saying, no, she should stay. She's happy there. This is just the thing she's going through. You know, the idea was that I'd create a show where the, the end of the episode was the beginning of the argument in the living room. What should she do? You know, I, I always liked that idea of it. And Lifetime kept saying she's not a strong enough character. She's not a strong enough character. And I kept thinking, this is the most fully realized person I've ever written. Hmm. And what I realized was, when I was getting enough notes, they want her to stand up to her husband and basically shoot him. Because at the end of every Lifetime movie back then, hmm. you know, the woman takes it and takes it and takes it and shoots the husband. And that's the, that's a strong female character. <laughs> so they were like, we want her to divorce the husband. I said, why? It's a, a decent marriage. She's just going through a thing here. And we don't know where this is going. No, no, because she's strong if she leaves. Like, oh, okay, fine. I, you know, yeah, I said, I'm writing this for all the people out there who have these feelings. And they love the feelings, but they hate themselves for having the feelings. And it's too, the marriage is too good for them to leave. But at the same time, part of them wants to go and a lot of people they get into things because they don't want to disrupt their lives you know but but that didn't matter they're just looking at characters going she should shoot the husband so it was a, a somewhat heartbreaking experience but i got to work with some wonderful actors and write episodes i'm proud of did 15 episodes and, uh, and then it was gone very cool um and you did also after that um so of course you did fraser which was which was a very great show 
Um, but then some freelance episodes of a bunch of shows as well. Um, I, you did write for Jericho, which is a family favorite of ours. Um, oh. Also, Star Trek Enterprise, love that show. Um, but tell me about sort of some signposts of between that and Modern Family, which was the next sort of really big hit. Uh, between that and Modern Family, I uh, did a show called Threshold, which was sci-fi CBS. Brandon Braga, a friend of mine and a genius writer, uh, was nice enough to bring me in on that. And also, he used one of my stories for Star Trek Enterprise. And then I got hired by a wonderful writer named Carol Barbie for uh, a show called Jericho. And I had a wonderful time on that. I missed that all the time, actually. I had such a good time. Um, and uh, I will say that it was really it was really nice to go from comedy to drama because I could write a scene and I would hit all the emotional beats and all the narrative beats and I didn't have to be funny every few lines on top of it. So it was like a vacation. Um, but after a while, I sort of did miss the being funny. And um, then I got an offer to work on a show called Back to You and uh, that had Kelsey Grammer and Patricia Heaton. And that was created by Steve uh Steve Levitan and Chris Lloyd, uh, who then went to do Modern Family. Mm. And, um, and I'd known Chris from Frasier. Uh, but I worked with the two of them. And uh, because of that, they hired me on Modern Family. I also did some animated cartoons um, uh, that were kind of fun to do. It was nice to, it's nice to do something totally different. Like I'll occasionally do a book or a cartoon or sci-fi or drama or whatever. But it um, kind of opens things up. Very cool. And now Modern Family was, it was different. Uh, I mean, it was it was a very different kind of comedy, single camera, um, mm -hmm. and uh, um, I I remember when it came out. Especially, it was just so diverse and very proudly diverse. Uh, what was it like to write for that when you you had done a lot of multicam before that? Well, there were a few ways that it was different. In some ways, it's strangely the same. You're writing jokes and you're writing you know funny bits, and you have to structure a story. With Modern Family, we had, I think, 11 or 12 characters. I don't remember the number. And we were telling three stories a week. Now, you got 20 minutes to tell a story. And mm -hmm. so you learn economy. You're cutting out syllables and just even silent letters you're cutting out, just in case maybe it'll pull up the show. Uh, the good news is that with a multi -ca uh, single cam, you don't have the laugh spread. You don't have the studio audience making the show longer. So you can cram more jokes and bits in there. Uh, the other good thing about Modern Family for that is that because it had that device of people talking to the camera, you could you could dispense with uh, uh, exposition very quickly. Instead of having a scene where two people talk, hey, I got an invitation to a party. I wonder who's going to be there. Do you want to go there? It's Saturday night. Saturday night? But that's the night I have to... Okay. With Modern Family, you just have someone look in the camera and say, well, there's a party Saturday night, but she can't go because Bob and I can't. So you've immediately given yourself two pages to play hmm. because you're just taking care of all that in one nugget. So between the, the lack of studio audience laughing and the device of the uh, mockumentary, uh, we were able to fit three stories with all those characters in all the episodes. But like I say, you learn economy. You, it's a luxury when a scene would afford you a chance to go off onto some funny tangent. But you had to get right back to that story because, you know, page count was piling up. Mm. And a, a very tightly edited show, too. Um, I know you had mentioned in another podcast I, I was checking out that the episodes were often 34, 35 pages. Yeah. Um, and, and you would condense them uh, in post for a lot yeah, of it. We, and, we, and, yeah, some of those things are so, there, some of those things, there's not a moment where people aren't moving or talking hmm. and just talking right over, just like I'm talking over you right now. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we, we just pile so much into so many of those episodes. One of the things that helped us um, get all that stuff shot, again, the mockumentary conceit, because mm -hmm. you could get somebody in the background and someone would be in the 
some foreground and you'd see someone in the background doing something funny and the camera would just like go find them all of a sudden. Um, because it was supposed to be handheld and supposed to be a mockumentary, you, you bought that. Whereas if you were doing it in standard sitcom, you had to light that shot differently and you had to cut to a different angle because the cameras were just kind of swaying back and forth and basically standing right there. Um, so the, the sort of messiness allowed us to shoot it a little faster too. So we just kept getting more material. So how, how do you write that? I mean, would you actually write those camera moves and things into it, or was that something you would just sort of find as you did your table reads and talk with the director and that kind of thing? Yeah, we would find it. I think we, the only time that we as writers put in camera moves is if the camera move served the joke in a specific way. If the joke only worked if the camera did this, and then we then we like pull out to see, uh, you know, whatever, then we'll say that. And even then, the director might find a different way we weren't thinking of to do it, but at least gives them an idea of what we're going for, humor-wise. Otherwise, uh, we let the director work it out, and we, we would all be on the floor, not all, if it was our episode, we'd be on the floor with the director, or with Chris or Steve, and we would, you know, see what the director planned for it, and then, you know, sometimes it was great, and then other times, we'd all get in there and say, well, instead of having the character stand there, why don't we have the character enter saying that, and the and this whole entire scene, she's walking in, going through the hall, grabbing the thing from the kitchen, taking her keys, blah, 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 and walking out. The, the entire scene, she never stops moving, and then we could shoot from him, blah, 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 and we'd get creative with it in there, you know? But like I say, very often the directors, we had great directors, they would blow us away with the things they were thinking about. So it, it was very collaborative, which was nice. Mm. So talk about the, the difference from a writing perspective um, between single cam and, and multi cam. All of these big multi cam shows that you had done moving to the single cam. From your perspective, um, how, how different was the process of, as a writer? Well, creatively I'll, I'll hit first is that um you know with a with a multicam all your jokes let's say the spectrum of funny from one to ten and let's just i'm making this all up and let's just say that that one is just like huh, that's funny and ten is like you're laughing and laughing and tears are rolling down your cheeks um but those first few numbers are like a little chuckle a little smile a little kind of oh, that's pretty funny you know you can appreciate laugh uh, something funny without laughing on a single cam where there's no studio audience, you can do a joke that fits in any of those slots and it'll be successful. Mm. On a multicam, every one of your jokes has to be up high enough to where the audience is laughing out loud. Because if you have a character do something amusing and the audience is just going, hmm, pretty funny. What the people at home see is the character doing something funny and then hearing there's no laugh. Mm. And suddenly, because we're so used to the laugh is the period at the end of this joke we, we've grown up with it. It is in our DNA. To hear, see something funny and then not hear the laugh when we know there's a studio audience there makes the joke bomb. So all the jokes have to be at a certain level. On single cam, they could be just like clever, like MASH. A lot of MASH is not laugh out loud funny. It's just clever wordplay. And you go, clever, you know, oh, oh, that's good. I like that. Oh, boy, how did he, you know, whatever. But you're not always laughing out loud at it. You know, we had a MASH writer come over to Cheers, and every now and again there'd be a joke that would be a great MASH joke. But it wasn't making the studio, and the studio audience would appreciate it, mm. but you could hear them appreciate it because it sounded like not laughing. Um, and that wasn't good. But um, so that's a creative difference. Uh, a difference production wise is that with a multicam, the studio audience, uh, you are going and seeing a rehearsal of the whole show every day from beginning to end, all in order. And then if the story isn't working, you've got to go back and you've got to rewrite that whole show because they have to rehearse something the next day. Mm hmm. Very, very, very late nights on a multicam. 
on a single cam, you commit to what the show is going to be pretty early in the thing. After the table reading and the subsequent rewrite, you're basically saying, this is the show, and we'll find changes along the way, but this is it. Uh, that means you don't have to go troop over to the stage every day and watch a full rehearsal, which means you could be working on future episodes uh, while it's being shot. And so the hours are a little better that way. Mm-hmm. So those uh, the downside is you don't get that rush of that that that, that when it's theater and that, that opening night and the audience is like thrilled to be there and they're laughing and everything's just working on all cylinders. It's it's a lot different, a lot sort of quieter celebration of it, I suppose. Mm. And and uh, this is also the time that social networking was uh, was growing. Um, is that ever a part of of like, do you watch social networks as as your shows air? Um, is that something that that became part of uh, the read on how how this stuff was landing? Well, do you know, for me, I remember that starting at the very end of Cheers. There was a, there, there were these pro, pro, uh, platforms, uh, CompuServe and Prodigy, and they had bulletin boards, and people would write about their favorite shows. And right at the end of that last year of Cheers, we sort of discovered those. And like we were like listening to what they were saying about the upcoming finale and would Diane be back or not. Um, and then in Frasier, it was a little more sophisticated, uh, but still a lot of bulletin boards that we would all go to. And we would, you know, after every episode aired, we became junkies. It's like, <laughs> what, what did this person in a basement in Idaho think of the show last night? Yeah. You know, and, uh, and we loved it when people agreed with us and the people who didn't agree with us were idiots and you know, it, it's crazy. And by the time Modern Family came along, I mean, first of all, I don't know why, you know, what is TV criticism anymore? It, it's like every episode is going to be critiqued by anyone who has a laptop, mm-hmm. you know, and anyone who has, we all have space on the internet. So everybody's a critic. And so I think we read reviews of episodes, but sometimes you would just read, you'd read, this was the best episode of TV ever written. And you'd be like, yeah. And then someone said, this is the worst episode of TV ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then eventually you realize, oh, you know what? I'm gonna, I would sacrifice the rush, the rush you get from the good reviews just to not ever deal with the bad reviews. Ty Burrell put it best. He said that reading reviews is like it's like Russian roulette. And you read one, oh, that's a good review. That's a really good review. And you read, okay, I'll read another one. That's a good review. That's a good. And you should stop right there. But I'll read one more. And then eventually you're going to get that one that says this guy should never be an actor. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, bang! It always happens. Um, we started. I guess Twitter was, I don't know when Twitter came out, but it uh, came along, but it was, uh, it was big enough during modern family that we would on the nights when it was airing, it was Wednesday nights, Wednesday nights, I think Wednesday nights at nine was six o'clock in Los Angeles. And we'd know that it was airing on the East coast. And so we would get on Twitter and watch, you know, the, the feed and just watch people talking about modern family and they'd be like laughing at it and they would repeat jokes. And in the room, we don't like every writer would like watch it that way. Not mine, not mine, not mine, <laughs> not mine, not mine. Um, and um, yeah, so it was fun. We would actually watch the we would watch the audience discover the show because it was still new. Yeah, and so we were watching them discover and fall in love with and embrace these characters. And so, so we were very lucky that we not only just got to do it ourselves and put it out there, but we got real time feedback. And that was the closest you can get to a studio audience, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, on that but it was it was fun i i don't know if people kept doing that i i think we kind of fell out of that after a while but uh, it was fun fun at first yeah that is very cool so so in in the last 10 years um have you been developing your own material uh have you been pitching your own projects or are you just uh, working on these shows uh with other people well i did uh, five years of modern family a great time and i'm still still i think close with a lot of the people i worked with and um 
I took an offer to go to CBS and work in development there, which involved my helping out on some of their shows that they had. There was a reboot of The Odd Couple and a show called yeah. Superior Donuts. And I helped out on those shows. And uh, I did two pilots during my time there. One was okay. I, I, I know what the, it would drive me crazy because now I know what the problems are, were, but it's too late. And then one that I thought just turned out terrific. Uh, but uh, I think that um, for reasons that aren't particularly important here, it didn't go on, which is unfortunate because it turned out it was a nice pilot. I was very proud of that one. Mm. Um, and it just didn't go. And so after my time at CBS, I, I said, I'm going to take a break from this. And I took a year off. Then I worked on a, a show called The Orville uh, mm. with Seth MacFarlane, uh, where I really didn't do much at all. And I'm sort of embarrassed that I took money for it because I sat in the room and listened to Seth be brilliant and Brandon Braga be brilliant and yeah. Andre Bormanis and David Goodman be brilliant and uh, uh, and God, all of them. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were there. I was such a brilliant staff, and I just sat around like, gosh, you guys are good. <laughs> Jerry. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but it was still, it was fun. I'm glad I did it. Yeah. And so that is, that takes us to the present, or is uh, anything it else in the, in the fire right now? Takes us into the future, practically. No, yeah. actually, nothing, nothing in the fire right now. I mean, I, because we're doing this in the time of uh, COVID 19, no one knows what the future of the industry is. Hmm. It'll be interesting. I, it's funny. I used to say that there's so much product out there, so many shows, so so much that, that they should stop making TV for for a few years so everyone can catch up. You know, <laughs> and now it seems to be happening. You know, yeah. everyone's catching up. So I don't know what the world will be like when we come back from all this. There may still be a place for me in it, and if so, great. Maybe I got a couple of years left, and if not, I had the best ride ever. So I mean, certainly can't complain. Cool. So. Um what would you say has been the hardest thing about writing for TV? The hardest thing about writing for TV, you know, it, it's for me, it's only in retrospect that I realize how hard it was is that, um, I mean, yes, there's pressure. When I was in high school, the worst feeling in the world was having a paper due, mm. you know, like you were sent off on Thanksgiving vacation. So wow, four days off, but it seemed like forever back then, but you had a paper due. And so that first day you're like, okay, you know what? I got three, yeah, four whole days. I'm not going to do it today. Woo. But there's that voice in the back. You got a paper due. You got a paper due. And then, you know, Saturday and Sunday, you know, paper, it just wrecked your whole time. But being a TV writer, you always have a paper due all the time. And it's not just your teacher. It's your co-writers and it's a cast and it's a studio and a network and an audience and critics and your family and everybody who's ever going to look at it. And, um, uh, to do that week after week after week after week after week for years and years and years does kind of take a toll, I think. And I, I came into Cheers seven years in and then Frasier, I think, seven or seven years in. And so when I was running Frasier, I was competing with what Frasier had already been. Frasier had just been the most amazing show. And I come along toward after, Niles and Daphne get together. It's like, OK, they're together. Take it over, Dan. You know, ah! um, and so uh you know, it was a tricky thing. I was always trying to live up to what things had been before. And it's a lot of pressure for a lot of years, you know, and it's uh, sometimes it's fun and wonderful. A lot of times it is. But then other times you just wake up in the middle of the night, like in a fetal position, because you can't think of any ideas or you're afraid you'll run out. You know, um, I also found that that decades of, of of dedicating most of my brain space to people who don't exist and situations that aren't happening in places that don't that, again, don't exist. I feel like missed out on a lot of my life as it actually is. Mm. You know, I feel like I missed out on, you know, the actual, the world. Um, 
And so there are times now that I think about writing and I just think, no, 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 no. I missed years of the sun going up and down and the feel of this and the, you know, whatever. Um, so that I feel like that took something from me. Mm. I think I want, I think I wanted it. I think, I think like a lot of people were driven, they give their, you know, they give a few decades to the thing they love, the profession. And then one day they may or may not wake up and realize, Oh, that took a lot of my life away, you know, in a way. Mm. So that, that's the hardest in, in the long run, I think. Yeah. Well, flipping it over, what, what would you say is the best part about writing for TV? I laughed my head off uh, with the funniest people I'll ever meet. The funniest people anyone would ever meet. I mean, my God. I mean, I, I hung out with the writers. First of all, I didn't just hang out with the writers from my shows. I, the, when I came on to like Cheers, there were writers who had been on the Mary Tyler Moore show and they'd been on all the shows growing up, you know, I write from MASH. And so, uh, so yeah, I got to benefit from being in the room with these people that I just looked up to like crazy and still do. Uh, looked up to when I was growing up in the 70s. I got to meet them. I got to work with them. I made them that laugh. They made me laugh. Then the people my age that were coming up and then all this creativity all around me all the time. And part of part of all of it, no matter how hard it is, and it does get hard. It does get just brutal. And you're there till three or four in the morning, banging your head against a wall, trying to think of an idea over and over. But the truth is, you get so close with a, a group of writers. If you spend every day together mining your own lives, your own psyches for stories and trying to understand your characters based on what's happening to you inside, it's like group therapy every single day. And you get really enmeshed with these people. So by the end of every season, you know, it's like, you, first of all, you want to kill them sort of, but at the same time, it's kind of like, how am I going to live without you guys? Mm. Um, so I, I had experiences that not only do few people have, but I think, in a way that no one will ever have again. I, I lived television at a time. I did come from the time of three networks to, to basically now. And uh, a lot of it changed. Fox, and cable, and, you know, whatever, uh, DVRs, the internet. And I watched it go through a lot, and I got to laugh and make a lot of people laugh. But that way I sort of proved to an eight-year-old version of me that, yes, I could be funny. And uh, it was great. I, I treasure a lot of that. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that leads me to... Um... I mean, you've seen the industry change so much over the last 25 years. Um, 35. How do, you, 35. How, how do you feel about where the industry's at right now, virus aside? Uh, well, I um, my feeling about it is that um, I simply have to understand and embrace that it is not the field I went into. Um, in some ways, yeah, it will be. In some ways, when you come right down to if I'm writing jokes or a funny scene or being creative and people are acting it and some people will see it, that's fine. But that that idea of, oh, my God, my name is on television and people are seeing it all over the country is not particularly special to anyone now. Um, and uh, that, that sort of magic part of it is gone. And so it's um, it's where it's going. I think it's creatively interesting in that there are so many different kinds of TV now. Uh, so there are so many different kinds of shows. It's wreaking havoc with people who love genre because all the genres are blending into each other like crazy. And so we have shows for upper best comedy that never get laughs because there's some comedic quirk about it that allows it to be called a comedy. And then we have sci-fi mixing with this, mixing with that, mixing with this. You know, people who hand out awards don't know what to do. Um, but it's kind of an interesting time creatively because it's all bets are off. It's a little bit the Wild West, you know. Um, coming into this, I, I feel a little sorry for the people coming into this. It's not as cut and dried as when I came into it. And it was like, oh, you write a script, da, 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 and you and you learn, you go up the ladder. 
Now, no one's even sure what that ladder is shaped like or, or what the ultimate reward is. You, you're not going to have a career where you create a show that does 100 episodes and then that 100 episodes goes into syndication and then you're a, a zillionaire. Hmm. You know, that just doesn't happen now like it did. And so, um, you know, I I don't know. I truly don't know where it's going, but it's it's interesting to watch. I'm, hmm. I'm sort of glad that most of my years are behind me in it. Hmm. Well, what what would you say you are are passionate about and and how do you incorporate that into the stories you tell and also the work that you do oh well i think that um i think in some way you caught me at a time when i'm not sure i have i certainly don't have as much passion about any of it as i did when i was younger because i was still discovering and figuring it out and putting the pieces together and there was sort of a joy in that um now, look, I'm not saying that I've figured it all out or I've put all the pieces. Yes, there's always more to learn. There's always improvements to be made. Do I necessarily want to climb those mountains at this age? You know, I don't know. You know, I'm not a young person anymore. Uh, so, you know, every 10 years, I think everyone should reassess and go, wait, I'm chasing this thing that I wanted 10 years ago. Do I want it today? Mm. You know, and I look at it and I go, well, I don't know that I want it as much. I, I miss working with ridiculously talented people. There's a rush to that. That I miss working with people in a comedy room where you're constantly back and forth and hopefully being hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the level of wit is like crazy to assemble that kind of group in one room and just deal with that all day. It's, it's wonderful. So I miss that, and I hope that I get to do it again. I really do. Um, but as far as like, I don't want. I have no need now to create a show. I don't. I don't think I want the headaches of production. I think that I've gotten to a point where the rush of creating something, getting, on the, getting it on the air, is not as, as, does not quite equal the dread of having to deal with the politics and the production headaches making something. And when I was younger, I didn't care what those headaches were. I just had to get my ideas out. Yeah. Now, now I've sort of matured to a point where like, yeah, I can get my ideas out, but if I have to work with this network, then they'll have to make me do this. And then if I do this, then I have to end. Then I'm there all night. Ah, what am I doing? You know? um, so my priorities have shifted. So uh, creatively, I don't know that I'm particularly passionate about anything at the moment. But, uh, but you know, I say that and then tomorrow some idea will pop into my head or somebody will say something that sparks something and I'll be off again. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, change gears and talk about your books. Um, oh, you hey. have two, two books, one, one of them comedy related. What are you laughing at? Um, not to be confused with the Brad Schreiber book. Um, t- talk about that one. That's a textbook, actually, and it's uh, it presents uh, lays out a sort of new version of comedy theory. There's some ideas in it that are pretty old, but then a new sort of framework for it. As opposed to all comedy is X, I sort of approach all comedy as a landscape of variables. Mm-hmm. And um, it took me eight years to write, but it took me like from the time I was eight and all that figuring it out and all the you know studying and then the hands-on and the stand-up and then working with these funny people, all the studio audiences, all the stuff we've been talking about was I actually, I was very analytical and I would go like, how come this happened? What if we did that? Aha, aha. And this book essentially is the results of years and years of lab work, a lifetime of lab work. And so I came up with a fully realized version of what I believe comedy is and how it works. It's, it's a bit of a slog and it's basically a psychology book is what it is. And I'm quite proud of it, obviously, because I'm going on and on. But, uh, uh, and they've used it in some colleges, which is nice. And um, every now and again, I'll get a nice note from some, saying from someone saying, "Oh my God, this just you know this changes the way I think about this or that or whatever." Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in in why we laugh or do this funny noise we make when there's like certain information that hits us the right way, it's a it's hopefully a good book. Very cool, very cool. And uh, your other book, Adventures of Mrs. Jesus. Tell me about that one. 
<laughs> well, um, that I wrote during a nervous breakdown I was having toward the end of Modern Family. Um, and uh, I had drawn a picture. Now, forgive me, anyone watching this who is uh, uh, hopefully will not be offended by this. I mean no offense. I'll get to that in a minute. But um, I drew a picture. I drew a cartoon. I used to draw cartoons on my scripts. And I drew a picture on the back of a uh, modern family, and it was Jesus on the cross. And there was a woman standing at the base of the cross, and she says, are you even going to ask me about my day? And I called it The Adventures of Mrs. Jesus. Mm. And uh, we all kind of laughed at it. And I thought, well, you know, uh, maybe I'll put that on Facebook and really offend some people. So I, I did some clip art kind of thing, and I put it on Facebook. And enough people liked it, so I did another one. And I did another one. I did another one until I did about 100 of them. And then HarperCollins said, if you do 50 more that haven't been on the Internet, we'll make it a book. And uh, a lot of people, unfortunately, sort of miss the point. They say, oh, you're making fun of Jesus. You're making fun of his sacrifice. No, no, no. I'm making fun. And I never make fun of him or his sacrifice or what he's doing. Um, I, I'm pointing a finger at the, the, the humans that are so petty and self-centered around him. They almost don't acknowledge that there's any miracle in front of them. They're not yeah. seeing anything but their own pain. And that's what it is. It's really a satire about people. But unfortunately, because I use Jesus on a cross in a cartoon, everyone's, oh, you're making fun of Jesus. Yeah. I, I mean, for it to come out this way. And the thing is, they, they probably have an argument to some extent. Yeah, OK. Yes, yeah, so I will go with it. But uh, I certainly not the point of it anyway. Hmm. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's uh, talk for a few minutes about help for greener writers. I mean, the target for this podcast is is sort of the staff to mid-level, sort of that group that, that, that we talked about before who yeah. maybe just got on staff. Now what? Um, what would you say your advice to them would be, or maybe advice to your younger self when you were in that, that position? Uh, well, one thing I would say is, um, some of it I've already said just because it came up before, uh, about like, don't over pitch, don't try to show off. And, um, one is, uh, remember that your job is not about making the best TV you can. Your job is to make your showrunner happy. So if your showrunner wants you to do something that you think in your head, well, I've kind of seen that before. You can suggest nicely that maybe you do it a different way. But if your showrunner insists, your job is not to win the argument against your showrunner and do the best TV you can. Your job is to make that person happy because that person might recommend you for a job later. It shows that you can actually work as part of a team. You're going to have to learn how to get notes from people that you might not necessarily respect or notes you don't agree with. And you're going to have to know you have to develop that skill to to negotiate with them or to to listen uh, respectfully and still do what you want. There's lots of tricks you can do. Um, so you have to remember your job is to listen to your executive producer. I will say, um, and this is something I say in lectures and stuff, is that that there are a lot of times younger people will hand me scripts and say, do you think I can be a writer if this mm -hmm. is like writing? And I say, I can just tell you if this is a good or bad script. I can't tell you if you're a good writer. Maybe this took you a year to write. Maybe you took two minutes. Maybe you had help. Maybe you didn't. But um, even if it's a good script, being able to write is like one fourth of the things you need to have a career as a writer. Mm. Okay. So we'll call that the ability to write a script talent, uh, 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 talent. So do you have the talent? Do you have the ability? Are you in that to, to, to handle the art and the craft of it? Can you, uh, evolve as a writer? Can you have those insights? Can you, can you, can you marshal those thoughts into something that will trigger things in your viewers that you want? So, okay, let's say that you can. That's great. That's one thing you need. Two, a certain amount of ambition in your personality, a certain amount of drive. Are you the kind of person that will work three jobs during the week and then spend your weekend writing? Are you the kind of person that will say yes to yourself when a thousand people you really respect have said no? Are you going to be the kind of person that gets 
up and flies across the country to, to get this job and live on someone's couch or whatever. How badly do you want it? Because there's always somebody who wants it more. And let's say they're not a good, as good a writer to you. If they wanted it more, they hustled a little more, they get your job. Okay. So you need a certain amount of ambition in your personality. It's unfortunate. There are many, many, many talented people in the world who simply don't have that ambition. Mm. And then they grow old and think, oh, I should have done it. I could have been great. No, you were never going to be great because you didn't have ambition in your personality. And you got to let yourself off the hook. You know, it must be cursed. You must be cursed, I suppose, if you have a lot of talent and no ambition. Mm. The third thing you need is a political savvy, the ability to work well with others, because it is not a solitary pursuit. It is always collaborative. First of all, you're working with a bunch of other writers and you've got somebody who isn't you saying yes and no to what's going to go into your script. You have to meet producers and you have to talk to executives and you have to uh, find a way to be at ease when you talk to them. And you have to uh, uh, be somewhat personable and knowledgeable. If you have a meeting with somebody, do the work. Go on Google. Find out who they are so you've got something interesting to ask them, something obscure maybe in their past that might be interesting to you. Ask them about it. You know, um, go to events where you might meet other writers and other, you know, and producers and people who you might work with at some point. Okay, you have to develop that. And again, you're going to take notes from people you don't like. You have to know how to deal with human beings. So that's three. And four is luck. That's the wild card, you know. And uh, those four things, uh, in my mind, are, are what will get you a career. And I've been very lucky in a lot of that stuff, you know. Um, what other piece of advice? Oh, pitching to an executive. This is, this is something I talked to Jen's class about, actually. Because mm-hmm. um, sometimes people will pitch shows to me and just bounce their pitches off me and ask what I think. Uh, my, my first rule of pitching to an executive is don't memorize your pitch word for word and then go in the room and recite your pitch word for word mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. One, you might as well just be a recording. You're not a human being. Uh, if you're pitching to me and you just like – recite what you've memorized but this is a funny show about a thing that uh, then then i'm not even in the room with you anymore and i want to be in the room with you so 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 engage the person you're pitching to you know it's a conversation you're having also if you memorize everything word for word you're not and you're remembering what the words are and you're saying them you might not be reading the room see i like to read the room so if i start on one part of the show and someone looks like they're glazing over and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of like shorten that part of the pitch and get to part I think might be more interesting. And if they wake up a little bit, then I start to hammer what that is a little bit more because mm-hmm. I'm in the room, because I'm flexible. I understand my pitch. I understand the facets of my pitch and I'm watching what's happening and I need a specific outcome from that meeting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's something I tell young writers too. Don't be, don't be so scared that all you do is recite, you know, you have to be in a room with them. And I think people do appreciate being talked with rather than talked at. Mm-hmm. I, how do you think they can develop that? I, I remember when I was in university, I, I was in a rock band, and uh, in, in order to train myself for playing in front of people, I would walk around the residence with a guitar, and I would just say, hey, can I play a song for you? Um, do you think that... Wow. Okay, that's pretty brave. Um, do you think that in terms of pitching, that people can do that kind of thing? Just grab cousin, grab uncle, grab whoever, let me pitch to you. Is that, would you recommend people practice in that way? Yeah, I, I don't know about like necessarily grabbing people in public, uh, <laughs> but you know, ask your friends. Sure, ask. Try it out on your friends. You know, you know what? Try a video of yourself saying it. Uh, just just to get what you want is a, a, a sort of fluidity in your speaking. You um, and uh, but yeah, try it with different people. You might find that if you if you become good at reading the room, that you'll practice your pitch on person A over here, 
and you'll practice the exact same pitch on person B over here. But because person A was asking you these questions, like, well, what about this? What about that? And the other person's like, yeah, yeah, then what happens? Then what happens? Your pitch might turn into two totally different experiences, even though you're pitching the same stuff. So that's good to know because it means that before, until you walk into that room and have your meeting, that pitch could go any way. So just be prepared. Be fluid. It could go this way, that way. But you have some control over where this, this little raft is floating. You know? So, uh, yeah, practice. Mm. And uh, when you're interviewing writers, um, say, for instance, some of the shows that you've run, um, you agents will submit scripts. They'll say, uh, think about this, this person, that person. What are you looking for on the page and in the interview? Well, you know, it's funny. I find that the uh, the best you can do when you're hiring someone is the best you can do. You go off of a lot of hope because almost anyone can pull off a good meeting. It's not really until someone's in the room with you and pitching along with the rest of the staff that you get a sense of, oh, this person who was so funny and charming in the in the meeting can't shut it off, hmm. you know, or, or you know, whatever. Um, so you never know. So you might have a great meeting and your fingers are crossed and then six months later you just never want to see them again. Or likewise, you might have a meeting where someone's kind of quiet, but if you end up hiring them, it turns out they blossom. So you're taking a chance no matter what. Uh, what do I look for is someone who in a script there, I would love, I love reading scripts where there's not a single line that I've seen before. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, as far as jokes and joke structure, you know, it's, it's just like, if you're going to, if you're going to do, you know, Hey, I'm in the room or, you know, something like that, a, a, an overused joke. I'm like, you know, please just surprise me a little bit. You know, I, I don't expect every young writer to know that right off the bat, but, but, but ideally they'll surprise me. Um, a good ending to a script is great. Uh, my ex-wife was a writer. She used to say, uh, she used to say, Daphne Pollen, she's great. Um, she used to say, everybody can write a first act. And it's true. So many people come to me, I've got such a great idea. And they'll tell me, and it's basically the first act. They go, well, how does it end? Well, I don't know how it ends. That's, you're, you're a writer. You're figuring, <laughs> figuring out the end of a show makes you a writer, I think. So I like a script that has like a really good surprising ending, you know, or a good emotional ending. Just when they land the ending, I'm like, okay, you know what? I will forgive the little weak jokes here and there or the kind of rushed structure or whatever because look, look what it got to, you know. It gave me something. Um, you know, um, one, one thing I don't like, another advice for young comedy writers anyway, is when characters do something that are that is unmotivated, I should do a caveat after this, but uh, – and then if I say, well, why does the character do this on pay this crazy thing over here? And the answer is because it's funny. Mm. It doesn't work because the characters don't know they're funny. They don't know they're being funny. They don't know they're waking up every day in America laughing at what they do. They believe in what they're doing and they need a reason for doing everything just like we all do. What motivates me to pick up this or to go outside or to, you know, whatever? Uh, I'm not doing it for an invisible audience because I think it's funny. Um, now, that said, there are some shows where the tone might be because it's funny. And you're better off writing for those shows, the more sort of like wild and out there things or animation. Um, but as far as the standard kind of shows I come from, you know, you have to motivate the characters. Um, yeah, yeah. Have you ever worked with Sheldon Bull? I have not. I've worked on, I worked on Newhart. I know he worked on Newhart uh, mm -hmm. uh, before me. Uh, and uh, I, I met him once or twice, but I've never gotten the, never fortunate enough to work with him. Because I know in, in his book, he talked about how in comedy, you have to write the script as a drama first and then add the jokes because you got to make sure the story works. Um, would you say that's true? 
Look, first of all, everyone has their own process. So mm-hmm. someone might literally benefit from writing it as a drama and going. To, now, does he mean lit, like does he mean in your head, or does he mean literally write a script that is a drama version of your script and then going back and putting in jokes? Because I, 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 I think, and the reason I thought of it was what you what you had said about just throwing in a joke without that person actually having a reason to be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, that well, I think all jokes should be all jokes should be uh, they should work in the context of their surroundings. You know, that was an early mistake I made. I think every now and again, I would think of like what I thought was a clever joke. And then I would just like bend scenes and actions to get to this joke. And sometimes you could tell, you know, it's like, oh, and you kind of bent the scene just to get to that joke. That's not cool. Uh, And then I learned, oh, you'll think of another joke. And sometimes if you are true to the scene, you'll come up with a joke you would never have dreamt of. Hmm. So the jokes have to be true to the scene, uh, I think. Hmm. And I know in in uh, in dramas, it's very uh, very much the thing right now that people are primarily reading pilots. Is that true in comedy as well, or are there more spec episodes that are submitted? As uh, more spec pilots now. When I was coming up, the conventional wisdom was you do a spec episode. Then now it's all spec pilots, and I myself disagree with this. I think it's mm. a some showrunners will disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, but my feeling about it is that if you're a young writer, there are a set of skills, and each one's harder than the next. You have to create a spec script. You have to write a story. You have to come up with a story, and you have to have a beginning and a middle and a satisfying ending. You have to motivate it. The scenes have to work in and of themselves. There has to be an emotional core to it, and and it has to be funny. It all has to make sense. If you're starting out, the spec script is great because you can take characters that already exist in the universe, that have relationships with each other. The show has a tone. Everyone has their own voice. Aha, I'll use that and I will craft a story, which is what I'm learning at this level, how to make a story work, have a script that begins and ends on time and does what it's supposed to do. You know, the idea of on top of that, you're expecting the young writer to create a world and a tone and every voice of every character and interrelationships, the dynamics. That is such a big, such a high bar to put young writers through all the time. Mm. You know, I I think it doesn't nurture them. And um, and also, you know, I think if I'm a showrunner and I'm reading scripts from young writers, it's probably better for me if if I'm watch if I'm reading a spec episode of something and I know what the show is because then I know if he he or she caught their voices mm. you know, or caught the tone of the show. If it's something that's just made up, it's like okay, well maybe this is what you intend. Maybe this I don't really know the tone of this show, so I assume you caught it. I assume mm. you caught the voices of this character that's never spoken in any way, shape, before, or form before. You know, so I tend to think myself that the 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 bygone days of starting with spec scripts and and learning all your craft before you start to go write a pilot um yeah i think was a better way to 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 bring writers up up that ladder i do i do know showrunners who will still ask for spec episodes well i think i think it's good i tell writers write a spec episode first if you're looking to write your first spec script write a spec episode write a second spec episode then write a pilot but don't write your pilot first without having written spec episode the thing is agents are going to want to see more than one thing anyway. Hmm. So why not have a spec episode and a spec pilot and use the spec episode to teach yourself story and then, then move on from there to write a pilot. You know, you might as well do it. Hmm. Very cool. Well, last question I'll ask is yes. what might you say to your younger self? Cause you've, you've said a few times, if you went back, you wouldn't even watch those old episodes. What, what would you say to your younger self? Um, knowing what you know now, don't get married. Um, <laughs> Or don't 
get divorced. Either one would work. Um, <laughs> um, I say to my younger self, you know, I, I think that, um, gosh, I, I, it's a hard one. I, cause I go to these personal things where I just think, uh, you know, not that I ever, I rarely unintentionally, uh, or I'm sorry, I'm rarely unkind, uh, intentionally. I mean, I'm, I'm sure like everyone, we say things are unkind unintentionally. But I think there were times that I said things that I, I, you know, like my writing partner, Tom, he and I would like, you know, squabble things. And I think I said things I, I, I to this day, I regret, um, things that I think, and I think my regrets are standard human regrets. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad I don't have any real writing regrets. You know, I do have some, I mean, it's like, I, I like the other day I woke up with a better ending for an episode of cheers that I did. And it <laughs> helps me not to walk around with that in my head. Um, but, uh, no, I don't, uh, I don't know what I would have told myself. And you know what? I would have, here's the thing. I would tell myself, enjoy every minute of it. And I basically did, you know, even though, even the bad stuff, I, I look back and I just pull all the good stuff from it when I remember it. So I don't have any one big thing. I think I'm, I feel like I'm flailing with this answer. I'm sorry. Oh, no problem. Hey, you know what? I think enjoy every minute of it. A minute of it is a really good one. Um, and I've, I, I've heard a lot that, uh, people need to look at the long game. Um, it, it, it don't measure yourself by what you're in right the second. Oh, I agree with that. And that's, that's a big one is this don't, don't, don't make your career, your identity, hmm. you know? And I, I'm I, I basically understood this. I think, I think I know, I know a lot of people really did make their career, their identity, but, uh, but I sort of always thought I'd end up back in Ohio. And, um, and that one day that, that will just have been a huge part of my life. I went to Los Angeles and wrote for TV and now I came back. Hmm. Um, so I'm glad I had that, but, but yeah, cause you know, people go through this when they retire. It's like, what am I, if I'm not my work, you know? And also the idea of people applauding my work is not the same as people applauding me. They don't know me. Mm. You know? And so, so my self-worth should not be tied to whether or not I have any Emmys or applause or anything like that. Six Emmys, by the way. Ha. Um, <laughs> now that I did it again. <laughs> no, okay. Um, but, um, yeah, so um, that that's kind of the a thing. Yeah, don't get too swept up in it. I would probably tell my younger self, but I think I think I sort of steered clear of that a bit. I was never a big party guy, big Hollywood guy. Cool. Well, um, you've been very gen- generous with your time. We've gone over an hour here. Um, Good Lord. Yeah. Thanks so much for for all of your wisdom and sharing about your your life and career. Um, and best of luck to you. Um, Thank you. Thank, you. This, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, as this virus comes to a close, fingers crossed, um, hopefully there'll be lots of TV to do. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for the good questions and for letting me ramble like that. And have a good rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Drivingfootage.com provides 4K nine-angle driving plates for film and television. Over 14,000 clips are available for locations all around Southern California, with more areas coming soon. A fully equipped camera car with height-adjustable rig, is available for custom shoots and second-unit photography. Visit drivingfootage.com for details. avgearguide.com provides computer and gear rentals serving the L.A. area, including laptops with final draft, as low as $9 a day, with long booking rates available. They also scan photos, documents, video and audio tapes, and film reels to digital, so you can easily share with your friends and family. 
Mention the name of the TV Writer Podcast and you will get 10% off your order. Visit avgearguide.com for details. Full disclosure, I do own both of these companies. By supporting them, you help me bring new in-person video interviews to you. You can find dedicated audio-only feeds of this podcast at iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and Pandora. You can access the video versions via YouTube, iTunes, Podbean, and on the web at tvwriterpodcast.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and be sure to like us and post reviews on all of these aggregators. During the shelter-at-home order in April and May 2000, we'll be posting weekly episodes on Monday. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.